Matthew 26, verse 57 through 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Father, to be our teacher this morning. Father, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and that you would open our sluggish hearts, O Lord, to your word. That, O Father, you would give us understanding of the things we have just read. That you would apply those things, O Lord, to our hearts and lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we pick up... Uh, here this morning where we left off last time and just for the sake of uh, review last time we finished our study in the garden of Gethsemane Uh, Jesus was uh, 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 arrested he was taken into custody of Caiaphas Caiaphas's army here if you will army of uh, men with swords and clubs and the gospel of John tells us that Initially, Jesus is taken to Annas, uh, the high priest. And uh, I include this because this can be confusing. At least it was confusing for me. Uh, Some of you are are a little bit brighter bulbs than I am. Uh, It might not be uh, confusing to you, but I can recall uh, reading John's gospel many years ago and seeing that uh, Jesus is taken to Annas, the high priest. And uh, there he is questioned. Uh, got it so far. Okay, good. Well, then after that, he's taken to Caiaphas, who is also the high priest. And I remember thinking, well, how many high priests are there? Has anybody stumbled over that? Uh, how many high priests are there? Uh, well, there's some history behind that that I think really helps us understand uh, just what is taking place and really the sinister and villainous uh, measure of what is taking place here. Uh, Annas is mentioned uh, by John uh, if we had lived in that period of time, we would have understood Annas as being the father of this very powerful family, uh, of whom uh, five of Annas' uh, children, actually, uh, I think this includes Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, uh, five of them 
were high priests. Now, this uh, business of high priesthood is a, a family business uh, uh, for this uh, particular family. And we'd also know that it's the Romans who have been establishing and appointing these high priests. Now, Annas is uh, appointed by a fellow by the name of Quirinius. And uh, if you've read Luke's gospel, you might recall that name. Uh, Quirinius comes up in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel. Uh, he was a governor at the time uh, during Jesus' birth uh, when Augustus was uh, emperor of the land. And uh, upon the death of Augustus, uh, Tiberius takes over. Quirinius is relieved of his duties as governor. And a man by the name of Gratus uh, comes into play. Now, Annas is dis- deposed uh, at this time, approximately 14 A.D., uh, Gratus begins to appoint several high priests uh, between, say, 14, 15 A.D. up to about uh, 18 A.D. Around 18 A.D., uh, Gratus appoints Caiaphas, uh, who would be high priest for some 18 years. Uh, so uh, what's taking place here is uh, Annas, being the father of this family, being this patriarch of this family, uh, has a lot of clout. Uh, with the uh, religious established of, of the day, if you will. And uh, Jesus is taken to Annas first, even though he is not acting a high priest at the time. Uh, Annas uh, uh, questions Jesus and then sends Jesus to uh, Caiaphas, which is where Matthew picks things up in verse 57. Uh, we read, those who had uh, seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, where the scribes and the elders are gathered. Um, further down, uh, in verse 59, we see that the chief priests and the whole council, you see the word council there. Um, in the Greek, the word is Sanhedrin, if you will. It's the word, uh, we, we, you hear the word Sanhedrin mentioned. Um, it's uh, uh, probably the actual Sanhedrin that's at least gathered in part. I think they needed a total of 23 members to reach a quorum. Uh, and again, we need to remember these things are going on in the middle of the night. Uh, for weeks, we've been studying all of these events, and it's easy to lose track of that. This is still going on uh, now, probably in the wee hours of the morning on Friday morning. Uh, we're still studying these events uh, that have taken place basically into the night, into the wee hours of the morning. Now, my point in all of this uh, really is to make a point that uh, at first I think we're going we're gonna to have to say, Rick, well, that's blatantly obvious, but my, my first point is blatantly obvious. Let's keep the plain things the main things. And what are the plain things? Jesus is on trial, and he is on trial before worldly men, is he not? Well, what do I mean by worldly? Uh, again, that might be obvious to some, but I, I don't want to leave anyone behind. What I mean by worldly and this point is the same thing that the Apostle John means by worldly when he speaks of worldliness in the second chapter of his uh, first letter. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Uh, the Apostle's counsel to us is do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, the love of the Father is not in him. I, I uh, don't want to bring you into the habit of looking out the window, but uh, um, look out the window. What do we see? We see the trees. We see the, the sky. We see the beauty of the day. It is looking like it's going to be a very beautiful day. Uh, are we being called not to love those things? Is that what John is talking about? 
Uh, we're not to love the, the skies and the sea or the beach. That might be painful for some of us. How many love the beach? And we've got some heads nodding. Yes, we love the beach. Is that what's in view here? Uh, no. Um, the Bible is its best interpreter. And verse 16, actually, uh, it, it provides us with meaning of what John means. For he says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Uh, there John is explaining what he means by world. And the working definition that I use in my mind oftentimes is uh, the world in this sense is describing that domain of activity that's in opposition to Christ. That's how I sort this out in my mind. We might say that kingdom, if you will, uh, that is in opposition to Christ. Or we might say the realm uh, of, uh, upon which is in opposition to Christ. Uh, uh, these men uh, are worldly men who are trying Jesus, uh, which means these men are serving the kingdom that is in opposition to Christ. Simply, simple enough, correct? Which leads to my next point. These men are the leaders of the church. Let's not forget that fact. It's the high priest and his cohorts, the chief elders, scribes, all gathered together. And we see their worldliness as we look at the, the way they conduct themselves in this trial. If we look at verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. We're reading that for the first time and we're coming to the New Testament maybe with a bit of, uh, in a naive fashion, we might say, wait a second, I think I just misread that. Let me read that again. Um, what did that say? The chief priests, the whole council, were in carefully investigating all these things to get to the truth? No. They're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They're actively seeking anything that they can find, whether it's true or it isn't true. All they're looking for is two characters who can come forward and give them something that will agree so that they can make their case. They don't care if this is true or if it's untrue. All they care about is getting enough together that they can go to Pontius Pilate, who is now governor of the, of the region, so that they can put Jesus to death. These men do not have the authority to put Jesus to death. They have to get Pontius Pilate's uh, green light to do this. It is Pontius Pilate who will have to give the go-ahead. So they're trying to make their case. If we look again to verse 60, uh, we read the words, but they found none, though many false witnesses come forward. Uh, this is quite astonishing uh, that there were many people in the middle of the night, uh, wee hours in the morning, available to come forward uh, to provide false testimony against Jesus. At three in the morning, where do you get these guys? Uh, at three in the morning, probably the only place you're going to find characters would be, to be hanging out at the bars or the clubs or somewhere. It'd probably be the only place you could find uh, these characters. 
We're told in verse 60 that two came forward. And in verse 61, they said, this man said, I'm not able, I'm sorry, he said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The reader of John's gospel is probably pausing here right now and saying, you know, that sounds kind of familiar. I can remember, I can remember reading in John's gospel, like really early on in John's gospel, something to that effect, but it doesn't quite sound right. Uh, and if you're saying that, that you're 100% correct. In John chapter 2, uh, John records for us uh, these words which Jesus speaks. And uh, interestingly enough, it's at the time of the Passover. In John chapter 2, verse 13, we're told the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he finds those who were selling uh, oxen and sheep and pigeons. Uh, you know the story of the money changers. Uh, there they are exchanging foreign currency uh, into temple currency uh, and selling sacrifices, uh, selling animals for uh, the sacrifice. Many of these animals were insufficient. Uh, many of these animals were blemished. Uh, it was a den of thieves and robbers that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple. It was a place where uh, the Gentiles uh, were supposed to uh, be afforded the privilege of worshiping God. And had any of us been alive at that period of time, I'm quite certain that all of us uh, would only be uh, uh, able to worship in that court. We would not have been able to go any further than that court. Uh, uh, that would be the place that would be assigned for us to be able to worship God. And we have all this uh, thievery taking place. And what does Jesus do? He makes a, uh, a cord of whips and he, um, he begins to wreak havoc upon these guys and he runs them all out of there. He tosses the tables over and uh, he clears the place. And then uh, the Jews in verse 18, uh, they say to Jesus, by what sign do you show us for doing these things? In verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple uh, of his body. Uh, now, very clearly, we see Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Uh, very clearly, we see that these two characters that have come forward in this uh, kangaroo court, if you will, uh, are uh, uh, proclaiming and declaring false testimony. They're making false accusations. Now, it's at this point in verse 62 where Caiaphas, the high priest, he stands up. He says to Jesus, have you no answer? In other words, we say, what do you have to say for yourself? What is it that these men testify against you? In verse 63, Jesus remains silent. You know, as, as I ponder on that, that verse, I, have, I can't help but to believe that Caiaphas had to both be infuriated by Jesus' silence as well as scared by it. I think it would probably have had the effect of both. Um, he had to have asked himself over and over again, just who do we have in the dock here? It's just then in verse 63 where Caiaphas breaks Jesus' silence by placing him under oath. If you see the words, Caiaphas says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. By doing this, Caiaphas is uh, forcing Jesus to self-incriminate himself. 
Uh, to fulfill all unrighteous, Jesus has to give him an answer. Uh, he's placing him under oath. Notice how Jesus responds uh, in verse 64. He starts by saying, you have said so. Seeming vague response, isn't it? Uh, you have said so. Now, Jesus is going to make this really clear here in just a moment with the words that follow this. But before we get to them, uh, let's not pass over this too quickly. Notice Jesus kind of gives him this kind of vague kind of response. And, and what's going on there, we have to ask uh, at this point. What is Jesus doing? Uh, now Jesus is going to freely admit that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. He's going to do it by putting two passages of Scripture, to get, scripture together with his response. But before he does that, uh, he's giving this seemingly vague response to Caiaphas. Why? Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah that Caiaphas is expecting. He's not the kind of Messiah that Caiaphas has in mind. He goes on to make it very, very clear. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, with those words, he is taking two Old Testament passages of Scripture and he's putting them together. The first one is from Psalm 110 and verse 1, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And the other one comes from Daniel 7:13, where Daniel uh, sees in the night visions, one's coming on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, and he's approaching the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, the Ancient of Days is given absolute authority. He's given a kingdom that uh, will endure forever, whose dominion is everlasting. Now, we know that Caiaphas gets this. We know that from verse 65. Of course, they all get it. These men knew their Bibles. Uh, let's hold on to the first couple points I made here. These are worldly men. These are men who are leaders in the church. We generally don't think of these characters as knowing their Bibles. They know their Bibles. That makes these men very dangerous, doesn't it? Worldly men who know their Bibles who are leading the church. I can hardly think of any characters that are more dangerous to our souls than worldly men who know their Bibles who are leading the church. What could possibly be more dangerous than these kinds of characters. They can lead us all astray, can't they? Verse 65, you know, if you want an illustration, if you're ever looking for an illustration of, the, of hypocrisy of probably the worst kind that the Bible has to offer, and it has quite a few places we could go to uh, to offer this kind of thing, I, I don't think we can beat verse 65 in Matthew 26. I, I, the more I study this verse, the more I am so disgusted by what takes place here in, in verse 65. Here we see the true colors of Caiaphas. Uh, the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. Uh, this is a gesture where uh, he is making this grand show as if he is torn into pieces because the glory of the Lord has just been defamed. But in actuality, what's happening he has to be jumping up and down for joy because now he's got what he's wanted. He has got his case that he can take the pilot and he'll make no, he, he will lose no time in getting the pilot with this to make his case. What is the charge? Blasphemy. Defaming the name 
the glory of the Lord. It's amazing that the only one who has ever loved the Lord God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, and all of his strength was executed for blasphemy, for defaming the Lord. Every other human being who has ever lived has been guilty of blasphemy. The only human being who ever lived who wasn't guilty of blasphemy was executed for it. It's quite amazing, isn't it? He has uttered blasphemy, verse 65. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And we see that these worldly men join in mistreating Jesus in a terrible, terrible fashion. Now, this history has been given to us for our edification. It's been given to us to be built up in the faith. It's been given to us for the uh, salvation and welfare of our souls. But uh, this passage has not just been given to us as a history lesson. Uh, we need to make application of this. And I can think of no better application of this uh, than to think of a courtroom that takes place every day. I would submit to you that there's a sense where Jesus is still on trial every day. And where is Jesus on trial? He's on trial in the human heart, in the courtroom of the worldly heart. Let me flesh out what I mean by that. As we think about this kangaroo court that's taking place here in Jerusalem, let's think about the kangaroo court that takes place in our hearts. Let's flesh it out. Imagine a courtroom scene. On one side is Jesus, his gospel, the things of Christ. On the other side is the world, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pleasures this world has to offer. The case, the formal name of the case is Jesus versus the world. What is the verdict in the eyes of the worldly heart? The world wins. We might think of it another way. Let's think of another case in the courtroom of the worldly heart. On one side of the court are the promises of Christ, uh, the best of which uh, await until the next life. The best of which are not available in this life. They await for the next life. And on the other side are the promises of the world. We can have these things right now. We can touch them. We can feel them. We can, uh, we can smell them. What is the verdict in the worldly heart, in the unbelieving heart? What is the verdict? It's a case of the promises of Christ versus the promises of the world. Of course, in the unbelieving heart, the promises of the world win. Let's think of another one that's even closer to home. On one side of the court is the will of God, the will of Christ, however you want to put it. What is the will of God? What is the will of Christ? That everyone repent of their sins and come to Jesus in humble submission, in humility, in grief for their sins, and take up a servant's heart and take up their cross daily and follow Him. That's on one side of the court. What's on the other side of the court? I think I hear them singing over there. What are they singing? It sounds like Frank Sinatra's old song. I, I think it's that song that goes my way. I, I did it my way. It's a case of thy will be done 
versus my will be done. And in the unbelieving heart, my will be done wins. Now, our text speaks very powerfully about this in two ways. One way more powerfully than the other. We'll start with the first, the least powerful of the ways. And that is the clear condemnation of these characters. Very clearly, uh, these men in their hearts have ruled with the world on all three charges. The world wins, the world wins, the world wins. Jesus has got to go. And where has that led these characters? It's probably around 33 AD, I don't know, give or take a year, 33, 34. Uh, Caiaphas, he's only high priest until about 36, give or take a little bit. He's going to be high priest for a couple more years. Then his career, his high point of his career is gone. The glory days are over. What's next? The fleeting life is fading. And what's next? For Caiaphas, nothing but ruin. You know, Luke tells us that at one point in this trial, Jesus looks at these characters and he says to them these words, listen, you fellas wouldn't believe me even if I told you. Imagine your heart being so hard that you wouldn't believe even if Jesus looked face to face with you and said, you wouldn't believe even if I told you. That's how hard the heart can become as we reject the gospel over and over and over and over again. I I caution anybody who's rejecting the gospel this morning. It has an effect of, of either softening you or hardening, but it never leaves you the same. These men are going to ruin. There's another way that this text speaks to these things, and it's much more powerful. And it's the love that's on display here. The tremendous love that's on display. Who is it that's in the dock here at this trial? Who is on trial by these worldly men? The perfect man. The God-man. Who is it that these insults are being heralded against? Who is it that all of this stuff is being made up, that all these false accusations are being railed against? Who is it? He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One of Israel. Who is it that they're mistreating in verses uh, 67 and 68? Who are they spitting on? They're spitting on the one whom the powerful angels fall prostrate down on their faces before. If he would have wanted to, he could have afflicted them with absolute terror simply by partially revealing who he actually was. Yet he remains completely silent. He endures these things patiently. Why? Because he has his eyes on the prize. What is the prize? It's doing the will of the Father. But the will of the Father is the same as his will. His will and the will of the Father are one and the same. And what is that? What is that will? 
It's that none who have been given to him be lost. It's that he might redeem every soul that he has come to save. Do you see the love that's on view here? We might call this point heart-melting, heart-warming love. Where are you this morning? Let's just conclude with a few questions. Is Jesus on trial in your heart? You know, as we ask these questions, I I was quite puzzled this week as how verse 58 fits in all of this. If you look at verse 58, and Peter was following him at a distance, that is Peter's, you know, don't forget about Peter. He's still hanging around here. He's following uh, behind at a distance. Uh, As far as the courtyard of the priest, he goes inside, he sits with the guards to see the end. What's that all about? Uh, Initially, my thinking is, okay, this is a precursor to verses 69 and following. But I think I see the wisdom of Matthew in putting this in here. I think I see the, why the Holy Spirit has put this in here. As we're thinking about Jesus being in the courtroom of our hearts. As we're trying to see, is Jesus in the courtroom of our hearts? Let's take a look at Peter. What's Peter doing here? He's following Jesus. But he's following Jesus from a distance. He's following from this distance. He's back in this position of safety. He's in a place where he is free to come and go. Does any of that sound familiar? As you think about whether Jesus is on trial in your heart or not? Do you have, do you have the kind of thing like this going on? You know, I know I should be... I, I, I hear Jesus. There's Jesus over here. There's the gospel. And there's his claims. And there's all this over here. But you know, I got my thing going on over here. I, I think I should follow him, but I'm just not sure I should follow him so closely. It doesn't look like it's safe. It doesn't look like I'll have freedom to continue to come and go. Let me give you a warning, if that's where you are this morning. Peter is on his way to denying Jesus three times. That's not a safe place to be if that's where you are this morning. That's not a safe place to be. Don't keep Jesus at a distance. He's calling you to run to Him with your sins. He's calling you to embrace Him and confess those sins. And to cling to him as if your soul depends upon it because your soul does depend upon it. Don't follow him from a distance. Don't judge him in the tribunal of your heart. Grab him. Cling to him. Do everything that he says to the best of your abilities. And call on him for the grace for apart from him you can do nothing. Maybe some of us are here who have embraced him. We have embraced Jesus. But we recognize we've not embraced him perfectly. For who in this room has embraced him perfectly? Not a single one of us. And in those areas where we haven't embraced him perfectly, what are we actually doing? Are we suggesting for a moment that it's not in our best interest to embrace him perfectly in regards to whatever that issue might be? If that is the case, We have Jesus on trial, don't we? 
<laughs> Earlier this week, a, a thought came to me. No one on this planet is called a liar more times in one day than Jesus is. the author to the letter of Hebrews tell his congregation in his letter that in regards to uh, you, I'm sure that uh, there are better things. I'm confident that many of you are securely in Christ, but I'm not confident that all of us are. And that's the reason I went in this direction this morning. But before we leave here this morning, let's be sure that each one of us embraces Jesus with all of our hearts. Now, having said that, it's impossible for us to do this perfectly. I'm only speaking to those areas where we know, we know we're holding back. May God give us grace for these things. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I pray that you will keep everyone from misunderstanding the point of this message, oh Lord. I pray that no one will leave here thinking that they've got to be perfect. I pray, O oh Father, that no one would leave here thinking that they can be perfect. But, O oh Father, we do recognize that we are to strive for this, looking to you for the strength and the, looking to you for the grace, O oh Father. O oh Father, we can see, we can clearly see how imperfectly we do these things, O oh Father. And, O oh Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us grace to follow you ever more closely, O oh Lord. But, oh, Lord, I pray that every person here would embrace you, O oh Father. That every person here this morning who perhaps is following you from a distance would indeed embrace you. O oh, Father, for this we look to you. We pray, O oh, Lord, that you, O oh, Father, would give us the grace to do this. We cannot do this without you. No, oh, Father, I pray that you would keep anyone from misunderstanding. Uh, me as preaching any kind of legalism here, O oh, Father. May that spirit of the Pharisee be far from us. But, O oh, Father, I pray that you would instill in us that we would see that clearly, O oh Lord, you're calling us out of the world. You're clearly calling us to make a break with the world. And you're empowering us to do so, O oh, Father. O oh, Lord, I pray you will teach us these things and teach them clearly, that we have a proper understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You're able, I guess you can stand as we sing our closing song.